0: Yep, it's that time again. This is probably my favorite sermon illustration. Some of you have probably heard it five or ten times by now. Maybe for some of you, you're lucky and this is your first one. But hey, (laughs) we're using it. It's the sun and the ice cube. Kids, I want you to think, because I knew the kids, you're all kids at this point. But kids, I was thinking, especially for those of you that were younger, I think this really connects. What if the sun wanted to have a friendship with an ice cube? What if they wanted to be buddies? What if the ice cube like, is wandering out there in outer space somewhere, it's just kind of floating around and it's all freezing cold and that's just the way it is and it's fine. But then the sun, this glowing, burning, hot thing is like, hey, ice cube, I want you to know who I am. I want to have a relationship with you. So it reaches out to the ice cube and begins to draw the ice cube close. Now, what's the problem? Well, the sun is really, really hot. Ice cubes don't deal well with heat makes them slightly uncomfortable, right? So, ice melts. Kids, what, what temperature does ice melt at? Anybody know? 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Good job. Here's a harder one. What temperature does it boil at? Anybody know? What's that? 212. That's right. 212 degrees Fahrenheit. The, as you approach the sun as you get into kind of the outer bands of the heat that's radiating out from the sun, from my understanding, that's actually where the sun is hottest. You approach 1 million degrees Fahrenheit. It's ridiculously hot. Surprisingly enough, this has nothing to do with a sermon, but it's interesting tidbit of knowledge, which for some reason I feel inclined to share. But, you know, people often say, oh, so so was hotter, or such and such was hotter than the surface of the sun. The surface of the sun actually isn't all that hot. The innermost part of the sun and the outermost part, like the the radiating part, that's super hot. The surface is, I don't know, it was like 4,000, 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't want a vacation there. Don't get me wrong. It's hot. But I mean, we have ovens and stuff here on earth that'll get that hot. Um, But anyway, I don't know why I share these things. I just keep my mouth shut. I think it's interesting. Maybe you will, too. So what happens as the ice draws closer to the sun? The sun's bringing it in saying, hey, let's feed be best buds. And the ice is like, yeah, this is great. And as it gets closer, it's going to start to melt. And then not only will it start to turn to water, but that water is going to turn to steam. And as it gets closer and closer, do you know what happens? It's not even water anymore. It breaks down into like individual atoms and protons and neutrons. And it transforms into plasma, just sheer Energy and the ice cube is just gone. There's nothing left of it. So here's the problem. If the sun wants to have a relationship with an ice cube, something has to happen. So I imagine it could go something like this. As the sun draws the ice cube in closer, what if the sun could build an enclosure for the ice cube? Kind of like a a thermos or something that would protect the ice cube would buffer the heat from the sun from hitting the ice cube straight on. So then the ice cube could come a little bit closer and get to know the sun that much more. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Dave, I thought we were talking about the Bible here. This is really weird. I think so many of us open up the Old Testament and read the Old Testament law, if we bother to do it at all. We read about the tabernacle or the temple, and we just kind of scratch our heads and go, what is going on there? What is that all about? Does it have anything to do with us anymore? And I think understanding the relationship between the sun and the ice cube, for me at least, really helps me understand what the Old Testament law is and what the tabernacle is all about. Because God, in this picture, is the sun. God is holy, perfectly righteous. We are sinners. And when sinful Creatures come into the presence of a holy God. It is not a happy experience. It is miserable, painful, and terrible. And yet God wants to have a relationship with us. But all throughout the Old Testament, He wants to teach His people who He is. So He brings them near and He protects them. He puts a buffer between His absolute holiness and their sinful condition. And that buffer is the Old Testament law. And the tabernacle doesn't solve it, but it protects them. And so we are in the book of Numbers. And we're walking from this moment at the beginning of the book of Numbers. I said earlier, this is kind of a middle book. It's kind of an Empire Strikes Back sort of book. It's it's in the middle of a story. It picks up the story of the Exodus from when they've left Egypt and they've come to Mount Sinai. They went through the Red Sea. God miraculously saved them. And they're standing there at the mountain. He's given the law and they're about to leave. And they've been at this mountain for at least a year or so. And they're about to go through the desert onto the promised land where God is going to lead them to conquer the promised land. But they have a long way to go yet. And before they leave, he teaches them a lot about who he is and who they are in relationship to him. I gave out the assignment uh, to read chapters 3 and 4. That's what we're going to be looking at today in the book of Numbers. I did hear from one person. They're like, wow, that's a lot of names, and uh, I don't really know what to do with it. And I get it. Numbers is tough that way. It's a list of numbers and names. That's why it's called Numbers. But man, in this is some really amazing truth that helps us to understand our relationship with God. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be walking through Numbers chapters three, all the way through chapter 10, which is when they depart. And this is God preparing his people, teaching them who he is and what their relationship with him has got to look like. But today I just want to go through chapters three and four. And in these chapters, we're introduced to a group of people called the Levites. And here we get into some of those names, like who are these people Why do we need to care about them today? It sounds so archaic. But if we can look closely at the Levites and who they are in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Numbers, I think we're going to draw out of it two really important themes about our relationship with God, which is, and I'm going to take these in reverse order, we belong to God and how amazing that is. And second, that there is a guarding that must take place that is still important for us today. So let's start by kind of introducing ourselves to who the Levites are. Again, just quick background to the book of Numbers. If you remember from Old Testament history, uh, God calls out to Abraham, draws his people into relationship. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And maybe you know the story of Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. That's, That's in the book of Exodus. God saves his people, brings them through the Red Sea. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law. And that's where the book of Numbers picks up. We actually met the Levites back in chapter 1. I kind of skipped over it when we covered that chapter. But I do want to go back to it. So flip over to Levi. I'm sorry, Levi. Flip over to Numbers chapter 1. I want to read for you verses 47 to 53. This is right after the first census. If you remember in in Numbers chapter one, there was a counting of the people of Israel that left Egypt that were old enough to serve in the army because they were going to go on to the promised land and God was going to lead his people to take the promised land. So he commanded them to take this census. But at the end of Numbers chapter one, he says, don't include one group. Don't count them. So let's pick that up in verse 47. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, was not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the the covenant law over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. Whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their standard. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community." The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. So we looked last week at how God arranged their camp and how the the tabernacle was right at the middle and he was teaching them that his presence, who God is and his presence with his people was to be the center of their life. It was literally the center of their campsites and the center of their movement through the wilderness, but he was teaching them a bigger point. God's presence is to be the center, the focal point of our lives. And as that camp spread out around the tabernacle, each in their assigned places, around the tabernacle, between the tabernacle and the rest of the Israelites, that's where the Levites were to camp. Now Levi is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the descendants of um, well of Israel, Isaac, whose name was changed to Israel, and, or Jacob, rather, whose name was changed to Israel. I always get those confused. And uh, so they're one of the 12 tribes, but they're going to be treated differently throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to start to see a little bit, bit of that today, and I know I know I can hear you in your brains just go, "Oh my goodness, this has nothing to do with us. This is so old, and it's Old Testament. Who cares?" Remember, God is teaching his people about himself, and we can learn from what God is teaching his people, and that's what I want us to focus on today. So if you turn over to Numbers chapter 3, we're going to pick up in Numbers 3 and 4, it is all about the Levites exactly what they were to do. I am not going to read the whole passage, okay? So we go through the book of Numbers. There's no way we can read all of the text out loud in service. So I'm going to sum up some of it, but I do want to read some of it. So remembering back to chapter 1, they had this special role. They were charged with caring for the stuff of the tabernacle. They were like luggage carriers for a lot of it. But there's so much more to it than that. Let's look at chapters 3, verses 5 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, "...bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting." A meeting and fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary is to be put to death. Now, we've got two things going on here. Aaron is Moses' brother. He's going to come up a lot throughout the book of uh, Numbers. Came up a lot in Exodus as well. But Aaron and his sons and his family from his sons is given a special role. They are the priests. They are the ones going in and out of the tabernacle and the presence of God serving in the tabernacle. The Levites, which is Aaron is one of the Levites, but the rest of the Levites are not actually priests. This gets confused a lot. They were helpers to the priests. And the first thing to remember here that I want you to understand is that God gave the Levites to Aaron and his sons to help with the ministry of the tabernacle. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. It's going to go clan by clan through the tribe of Levi, assigning them the tasks of what to do in the tabernacle or around the tabernacle more accurately, and specifically what to pack up and carry. Now, I know, again, that's one of those chapters we read and go, I don't care who carried the curtains. I, I don't really care who carried the table. I, it has no bearing on my life today, but it does. Look at Rome, or Numbers chapters 3, verses 11 through 13. The Lord also said to Moses, I've taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine, When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether human or animal, they are to be mine. I am the Lord. One of the last, in fact, the last plague before God rescued his people out of Egypt is that the firstborn of all the Egyptians were struck down. It's a very difficult thing to think about. But God commanded them to let his people go out of Egypt and they refused over and over and over again. And one of the things that they trusted in, they had these gods and these goddesses and their might and their power and their army. But one of them is that the Pharaoh himself thought that he was God, which made his son the son of God. And they believed that this was power and importance. And God says, it's nothing. And it can be taken away in a moment. But at that time, God began to teach his people something. And he says, "Your firstborn of all the Israelites. He says, they belong to me. And here he says, but I'm going to take the Levites in their place. The Levites are set apart as belonging to the Lord in place of the firstborn of the Israelites. Now, here's where we're going to get into what, how this applies to us. Okay, So if you've been asleep, here's where you wake up. Shouldn't be asleep. Shame on you. We're going to look at what it means to belong to God and how we learn about that from the Israelites. Then we're going to look at what it means to guard and why it's important to guard the truth and how we learn about that from the Israelites. So let's dig into belonging to God because this is, I think, the first thing that they needed to understand about who they were as God's people. And in order to do this, we've got to understand their picture, their concept of the firstborn. The firstborn in their culture inherited pretty much everything. They were the most, the firstborn son. They were the most important child in the family. Didn't mean nobody else mattered, but the firstborn legally had a certain standing to carry on the family name, the family land. The firstborn had a very important role. And God said to his people, I want you to consider your firstborn as belonging to me. And to help us understand this, I think it's good to dig into another Old Testament idea, which we tend to gloss over, which is the first fruits. In Psalm 24, 1 through 2, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So the principle throughout all of Scripture is that everything belongs to the Lord everything but God teaches his people a special way to remind them that everything belonged to him and he commanded them when they gathered in their crops they were to take what was known as the first fruits the first things that were gathered in and they were to dedicate it and give it to the Lord In Deuteronomy chapter 26, 9 through 11, he puts it this way. He brought us to this place and gave us this land. He's talking about the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. God's commanding his people when they get into this wonderful land that he's given them in order to remind them that it all belongs to him. He says, this is what you're to do. And when you bring the the first fruits, this is what you're to say. Place the basket before the Lord your God, bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. The first fruits were usually the best of the harvest. It was also a part of the harvest that when they collected it, they knew what the rest of the harvest would be like. When they began to harvest and they looked at how much was being brought in, they would say, oh, it's going to be a good harvest. Or, oh, it's not going to be a great harvest. That's not yielding as much as I thought it would be. So the first fruit represents the rest of the harvest. That's the key point. The first fruit represents the whole harvest. Now, if we bring this back to the firstborn, I I think it helps us to understand what's going on. And the first thing I need to clarify is God did not ask them to sacrifice their firstborn. I want to be very clear on that. I don't want anybody to leave here with any confusion. By God saying your firstborn uh, belongs to me, God was not saying offer them as a sacrifice. He makes it very clear his people were never to do that or to offer human sacrifices of any kind. Praise God for that. But by setting apart the firstborn and dedicating their firstborn to the Lord, it was a reminder to God's people that the entire nation belong to him. It's what the first fruit was. It was this, I'm going to give this bit of the harvest because all of it belongs to the Lord. And I'm going to remind myself that all of it belongs to the Lord. So I'm going to give the firstborn to the Lord because all of the people of Israel belong to the Lord. And this is how we're going to remember it. In Exodus chapter 13, 1 through 3, this is right after Exodus 12 when God saves his people out of Egypt, and it says this, "'The Lord said to Moses, "'Consecrate to me.'" That means to set apart for a purpose. "'Consecrate to me every firstborn male.'" The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. And it sounds like he's talking about like the firstborn and then he switches topics and goes on to talk about the Exodus. But those two things go together. What God is saying is, I want you to remember that I saved you out of Egypt. And you are my people. I've claimed you as myself. And the way you're going to remember that is by consecrating to me, dedicating to me every firstborn male and of every firstborn of the livestock. This ragged group of people in the wilderness, former slaves, Trusting and following God Almighty through the wilderness to this promised land, they belong to God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. They belong to God. Think about what that meant for their identity. To wake up every day and say, I belong to God Almighty. To have things of their day and their family life and their rituals, to remind them constantly, we belong to the Lord God Almighty. Being saved by God and belonging to Him is a powerful truth. It's so encouraging. It's life-changing to look at your, your existence as belonging to God. But it's also very sobering. Remember the sun and the ice cube? If the sun belongs to the ice cube, nope, switch that. If the ice cube belongs to the sun, because the sun wants to have a relationship with it, something is going to have to change. There's an incompatibility between these two things. And it's the same way with sinful humanity belonging to an all-holy God. And so if we're going to accept and begin to dig into what it means to belong to God, we have to also look at the other important role that the Levites had, which was guarding the truth. The Levites guarded the tabernacle. They guarded the things of the tabernacle while they were traveling. They kept the people, the Israelites and anybody else from inappropriately just walking into the tabernacle or playing with or touching the things of the tabernacle. They had a particular role to guard the tabernacle. Let me show you where this comes from and why it's so important. Look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. We looked at this before. The NIV says this, and I don't normally get into different translations because it's Usually it's just a worthless endeavor. There's a lot of good translations out there for different things. Okay. I love the NIV. It's what we normally use here at the church. It's a great translation for a lot of things. But the problem is sometimes Hebrew words don't have an exact translation in English. And the translator is left with a choice. Which part of this definition am I going to emphasize? Look at how the NIV says this. The Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi, present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community. At the tent of meeting, by doing the work of the tabernacle, they are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. So you'd get this sense that the Levites are helpers, assistants, and caretakers. And that is true. That is a good translation. But it's not the whole picture of what the Hebrew language is saying here. And the English Standard Version brings in the other side of it that is important to understand. Look at the difference here. This is the ESV here. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him. And over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And I actually think the English Standard Version here has the better emphasis. There is a strong emphasis on the Levites guarding these things, not just caring for them, not just keeping them neat and tidy. That was part of their guard duty, but it was to stand guard. They were to guard Aaron. They were to guard the things of the tabernacle and they were to guard the Israelites. It's one of the reasons they camped between the tabernacle and the rest of the nation of Israel. And between there were the Levites guarding. Why does this matter? What was it that they were guarding? Numbers chapter 1, verse 53 said, The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that, listen to this, this is God speaking to his people as he's claimed them as his own. He says, so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law we often have way too small of a picture of our Lord God Almighty. And and unfortunately, I think in contemporary churches, we have so emphasized the warm, fuzzy parts of belonging to the Lord and, and a relationship with Him, and that's true and it's good, but we miss some key things that God wanted His people to understand that He makes clear in the Old Testament. This is a perfect, righteous, holy God whose holy presence is dwelling among his sinful people, and he says, be careful. Be careful lest my holiness break out, and you experience it in your sinful condition, and you experience it as wrath. That's what wrath is. It's the unfettered, unfiltered experience of God's holiness by someone who is still in their sinful condition. Numbers chapter 4 tells us more about this. If you read it and you, you get into these nitpicky details, I, I won't go through all of them, but what you're going to see is the description, the instructions of how they were to pack up the tabernacle. And again, none of you are packing up tabernacles, okay? That's not your job. We don't have to do that. But what's important is that in the center, in the innermost room of the tabernacle is where God's holy presence dwelt. No one could go in there except the high priest and only once a year. It was absolutely holy. And so in the description of how to pack this thing up and move it, he tells them Aaron, the high priest, and his offspring were to take the curtain that separated the holy place from the outer room, take it and walk in with it in front of it, and cover the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt over. Cover it. And then they would put other animal skins on it and they would wrap it up. And then they would go through the holy place and the most holy things that were used in the holy presence of the Lord. And only Aaron and his offspring could cover those things up. And they would pack these things up and then the Levites would come in. And the reason why this is important is that God is holy. And every time they packed up the tabernacle, every time they moved it, every time they set it back up, even the arrangements of their camp was a constant reminder that's our God, and He lives among us, and He is holy. And they knew, or at least they should have known, that they were not to lose sight of that. God is absolutely holy, and God's people were sinful. He is the perfect son and we are the imperfect ice cubes that cannot be in his presence. And God provides this buffer against his holiness and his wrath so that sinful people can come to know him. And he makes it clear through many of these warnings, if they do not follow his ways, they are in grave danger. The Levites had an important job. They were to keep the Israelites away from the articles of the tabernacle when they were traveling. They weren't to just come up to them and look at them like curiosities, like, oh, this is so interesting, this is so cool, it's no, that is in the service of an all-holy God, don't touch it. They were to guard the tabernacle when it was set up. If somebody wanted to peek their head and through the curtain on the outside and they didn't want to go in through the way that God had commanded them to go, the Israelites were to stop them and even put them to death if necessary. This doesn't fit, does it, with our warm, fuzzy picture of God? Because I think so often we lose sight of the fact that this God who is so merciful and so loving and so gracious is also absolutely holy and righteous. And Too often we treat that as if it just doesn't matter. Then, like now, people wanted to come to God however they wanted. Whatever made them happy... Whatever satisfied them. In fact, in their culture, I think there was this idea like, if I could get this holy thing, then I could manipulate God to do what I wanted Him to do. And the Israelites, or the Levites rather, were there to say, no, I'm going to guard these things. We do not manipulate an all-holy God. He is in charge. He tells us what to do, not the other way around. God made it clear through the role of the Levites that worship was to happen on His terms, not ours. We do not manipulate God. And worship is not about how great or worthy we are. It is about how great and worthy God is. If the Levites didn't guard the tabernacle and fulfill this really important role, God's people could have been wiped out. Or the worship could have been polluted and diluted to become something that God didn't want it to be. It could become corrupted over time. And unfortunately, as we walk through the book of Numbers, as the Israelites leave this place, we're going to see that's exactly what happened. They lost sight of the holiness of God. God's truth must be guarded. Not because it is weak, but because it is important. God's truth must be guarded, not because it's weak, but because it's so important. People like to change the truth to suit their desires. There is a push among Christians and churches today to leave out parts of God's word because it just makes us uncomfortable. We cannot do it. As hard and as uncomfortable as it is, this is the word of God from a holy, righteous God who says, I want you to know who I am. We don't get to pick and choose. God is holy and we are not. And if we lose that distinction or we try to redefine it, we're going to be like the ice cube just rushing into the presence of God saying, here I am, just accept me the way I am. And boom, the holiness of God hits us. And we're going, what happened? I thought a relationship with God was supposed to feel good. We must guard the truth because we so easily make substitutes. We come up with fake gods, and then we worship him in our songs and in our day to day lives. And we call ourselves religious and we say, I love the Lord and I'm worshiping him. But the thing that we're worshiping becomes a far cry from the God who has revealed himself in scripture. God is God. We are not. And who we worship God as must line up with who he has revealed himself to be. Not who we want him to be. We need to understand that these are not just Old Testament issues. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter writes to the church. It's debatable whether he's writing to Jews or Gentiles, but in general, he's writing to Christians, New Testament, Christians. But listen to what he says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see it there? We belong to the Lord. The thing that God was teaching his people back in Numbers is what he wants us to understand as well. You belong. If you are a Christian saved by Jesus Christ, you belong to the Lord. And he calls them a royal priesthood. There's so many things we could go into the royal part, but we'll skip that for now. But he uses that word priesthood. We have a service to the Lord. There is this promised belonging here. We are created to belong to the Lord. And so much of human suffering and misery and sin is because we are constantly trying to make up substitutes to satisfy our need to belong to our Creator. We will make up reasons to belong. We will find people like us, who think like us, who act like us, who even look like us. And we will call that belonging. And we will say that it satisfies. We are created for more. And the kingdom of God is people who belong to the Lord because He has saved them. And the way to belong And the way to worship has always been through the way that God gives us, not our own desires. And in the Old Testament, he gave them a gate into the tabernacle. and All the worship was to come through there. And one day, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come along and say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we are still to guard that truth today. Paul wrote to one of his colleagues, Timothy, who was ministering on Paul's behalf in another city. And he says to Timothy, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Guarding is not an Old Testament concept. It looks different. I want to be very clear. We're not going to kill somebody who walks into the church and disagrees with us. Okay? There's a very different guarding that went on in the Old Testament from what goes on today. But the importance of guarding is still there. We must guard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if we change the way that people are saved by God through Jesus Christ and we make it something else, then there's no salvation left. And what we have to offer them is not salvation at all. We guard the truth today by focusing on Scripture, God's Word, not ours, by focusing on the Gospel, God's way of salvation, not ours, and by focusing on the church, gathering together with other ragged people, wandering in the wilderness with us, who have been saved by God and called to belong to Him. And sometimes it's an uncomfortable belonging. There's people were gathered together in the church that we wouldn't get together for any other reason. But we look at them and say, you're saved by Jesus. I'm saved by Jesus. We belong together. And it's a powerful testimony to this world. So often they cannot explain the unity that should be seen in the church of Jesus Christ. For the sun in an ice cube to have a relationship, for the ice cube to belong to and know the sun and draw close to the sun, ultimately that barrier, that protection will not be enough. Something will have to change. And that's where you have to move out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Where Jesus Christ comes and when we're saved by Jesus, we are changed from the inside out In Jesus, we have been cleansed from sin so that we may come into the presence of an all-holy God. In Jesus, we belong to God. We are adopted as God's children, part of God's holy, righteous kingdom. We have a belonging deeper than anything this world can offer. But we need to hold on to the belonging and the guarding. Because if we lose the guarding of the truth, we will lose how magnificent the belonging truly is. Is We belong to God through Jesus Christ and we are called to guard the truth of Jesus Christ and guard ourselves against all substitutes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it amazes me that you would look at one such as I and call me to belong to your family. I'm so unworthy to be called by an all holy God. And God, as I read these stories, that you have, in your grace and mercy, you have given them to us to learn about you. And they're hard. We don't want to hear about holiness. We don't want to hear about wrath. We don't want to hear about our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness. We want to be built up. But God, you build us up in a more powerful way than anything else can possibly build us up. But we must go through your way, your truth. God, I thank you that you call us to be your people by sending your son Jesus Christ and and granting to all who will believe in him to be your children. To belong to you. What an amazing blessing that is. But you are still a holy and righteous God. We must come through your way, your means, according to your word. And we must be transformed into your likeness. And God, I pray for us as Christians and our families and our own hearts and our own minds and our churches and our society, may we stand up for and guard your truth. Holding on to it no matter what happens. Proclaiming it no matter the cost. Because this is what people most desperately need. And we pray that as your guards, as your ambassadors as well, that we would proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to this world that is searching for belonging that they don't even know is possible. And may we tell them about Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.